Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Church Medicine, a community coming home to Jesus and His Church. For more information about us, visit ChristChurchMedicine.com. If I've never met you before, my name's Scott. Uh, like I said at the beginning of service, and uh, thrilled to get to study God's Word together. We're in the middle of our first ever membership series as a church. We're a, a younger church, and so. We're thinking about what kind of community we want to be like and what kind of community we feel like God is calling us to be like. And in our membership, we have a membership covenant that's modeled off of Acts 2, uh, 42 to 47. This, this passage we read this morning uh, about this beautiful picture of the first church. So would you turn with me really quick to just look at that? So this is our reading in Acts. And look at that very first verse with me in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. This is a really beautiful keyhole look into the early practices and beliefs that defined the church. And we're going to spend time this afternoon at a membership seminar and next week uh, digging more into those. But before we do, I want to spend really the entire morning thinking about that first verb, and they devoted themselves. Before we get to their body life together or their doctrine or their sacred rhythms, we learn that they were intentional. They were intentionally committed. Uh, The word translated devoted in Greek can be translated a bunch of different ways, but it, it means something like firm persistence. So when it says they were devoted to the fellowship and the apostles' teaching and the breaking of bread and the prayers, it means that they intentionally chose those things and that they were consistent in choosing those things. They were a community of holy devotion. And when we pray, we pray that our church will reflect that same holy devotion to the teachings and the practices and the fellowship of our church If we were at a restaurant, we would say, we'll have what they're having, please. And this is what is behind us having a community covenant, that when we all come together and we say, yeah, we're going to do this together. We're going to be devoted together to the same things and to one another. And really, that's my whole sermon. They were devoted. It's in the Bible. We're going to be devoted. Amen. We can all go home. That's it. Yeah. Um, But sadly, I can't stop there um, because today we really struggle with commitment in general, and we really struggle with formal commitment in particular. Not only that, we are afraid of commitment, and sometimes we even think it's wrong to ask someone to formally commit to something. It feels intrusive to us. Um, And what's interesting is that this commitment aversion is not just in relation to the church, but is a much broader issue in our culture at large, and especially uh, for us millennials and Gen Z folks. So I did some digging this week uh, to see what psychologists and cultural wise people were saying about this because it is something that any type of sociological world is studying right now and trying to figure out. And there's a lot of comments on it, but here are three things that pretty much everybody agrees are influencing the way that we relate to commitment in today's culture with what people call commitment phobia. First, we are paralyzed by options. Everyone agrees on this. There was a famous study uh, called the JAM study. Has anybody ever heard of the JAM study? Yeah? All right. 
uh, which researched the way that shoppers interacted with a display of fruit jelly in a grocery store. So in one display, there were six gourmet jars of jelly. In another, there were 24 jars of gourmet jelly. And the larger display received more attention. More people were like, ooh, look at this. But they were one-tenth as likely to actually decide and purchase some jam as the people who interacted with the smaller one. One-tenth. So the larger display had more interactions, but the people got paralyzed by the options and they didn't do anything. And loads of other studies have since taken those findings and done other ones in different contexts and have proven time and time again that the more you are flooded with options, the more you get paralyzed by your options, and the more you regret when you make a decision because you think of all the other stuff you could have chosen in its place. And what's especially terrifying is that the University of Wisconsin in 2016 did the same type of study with online dating. And they used the same quantities, 6 and 24, and the exact same thing happened. People were far less likely to date. They were far more regrettable of their decisions. So this is a big thing. In the internet iPhone age, we are flooded and paralyzed by options, and it takes one to know one. Marissa will tell you, I have like, I buy something and I use it forever. And so if I'm buying like a new pair of shoes, it literally, I need like therapy after trying to figure out online on Amazon like what to buy. Wayfair destroys Marissa and I. We get on Wayfair to try to buy a simple, we need a nightstand, and then we're just toast, okay? You guys know what I'm talking about, amen? The harsh reality of this is it is not just about internet shopping. The psychology of an entire generation is being rewired. Second, we value individual autonomy above all else. We are constantly told that our choice, our own brand, and our ability to do whatever we want, whenever we want, is very important, and it needs to be protected. And anything that would restrict or constrain us from that autonomy is seen as bad. A great example of this for people who are interested in sports is the shift that has happened in sports over the past few decades. Team loyalty is less valued today than a player's personal brand. The team is there to serve the star. The star is certainly not there to serve the team. And sports commentators endlessly argue back and forth whether that's good or bad. It's great. It gives people tons to just argue about because they get paid to argue about sports, and this is great. Uh, but we see this shift in other places too, even in things like marriage vows. Traditionally, marriage vows were about bonded fidelity and sacrifice and submission. But I have been at modern, modern weddings where the vows are literally, I promise to never change you. I promise to never get in your way or inhibit your freedom at all. Autonomy and unrestrictedness is our sacred cow. And it does not play kindly with commitment. We prefer things, whether they are relationships or church or whatever, with no strings attached. Lastly, the third thing everybody can agree on is that we don't trust people. The Pew Research Center and Gallup polls, I don't often like do tons of statistics stuff, but it was just interesting to me this week. So many people have done research that this generation fundamentally does not trust people as much as other generations, like a lot of different generations. And what's really interesting is no one really knows why. 
um, it's not that people are less trustworthy. Uh, previous generations, arguably, almost unarguably, went through far more global and national turmoil than our generation has, and yet it's crystal clear that, that we really distrust people. Um, people have, take shots at it. Social media hasn't allowed us. Most of our relationships happen online, and so we haven't had time to establish bonds and build trust with people, but everybody agrees we trust people less, and like we discussed last week, with all of the headlines about the church and the breakdown in the church, we absolutely have a hard time trusting anything in or about church. All of those things come together to give us an allergy to commitment. Whether it is with shopping or careers or friends or dating or church, we have an allergy to commitment. And if, like me, you suffer from this allergy, you know how miserable it can be because it leaves us afraid and paralyzed and isolated. It leaves us, as we've been talking about, dismembered. So what do we do? This is really bad news. I confess that as I was uh, studying this this week, I got really angry at our world and the way that basic social structures are breaking down so that we are struggling to establish like fundamental human bonds with each other. This is really sad, and I experience it too. But the answer is not to yell at one another to commit. That doesn't work. Commit! Just do it! This issue is way more serious than that. I take it way more serious than that. It's way deeper than something that can just be solved with a little applied pressure. What we need, and we're in church, so you know what the answer is, but I genuinely believe this is true, what we need is to have our hearts and our communities rewired by the commitment of God in the gospel. We need a corrective, transformative experience with the God who keeps his covenant. Amen? Because here's the good news, and this is super good news. The God of the Bible is not fickle. He's not ambiguous. He's not detached. He doesn't have one eye in the back door. He does not suffer from cosmic decision paralysis with you or commitment phobia. He never invites us into a relationship and asks for no strings attached. <laughs> Get this. Jesus did not value his own divine autonomy above you. Whoa. No, the God of the Bible is one who faithfully, sacrificially commits. He's all in. Indeed, God's love and power are always bound to his promised, sworn, acted upon commitment. Always. And we see this primarily in the covenants that God makes with his people. In all the Bible, God never asks people to enter into a relationship with him apart from the security and clarity of a covenant. Um, and I want to look at this in scripture a little bit, but before we do, I'd love to do some defining because this is a churchy word that we can just kind of, yeah, covenants are a thing, whatever. What is a covenant? Let's talk about what a covenant is and then what covenants do. A covenant is a chosen relationship in which two parties, at least two parties, make binding promises to each other and work together to reach a common goal. 
chosen relationship in which two or more parties make a binding promises to each other to work together to reach a common goal. It's an interpersonal agreement. Usually there's a ceremony and there's a sign that signifies that both parties are in. And in the Old Testament, there's all these epic ceremonies like taking off your sandal and grabbing somebody by the thigh. And we're bringing all those back in our church. So this afternoon, make sure you bring your sandals and be prepared to, just kidding, we're not gonna do that. Um, but it usually comes with a sign and a ceremony. If that's what they are, what do covenants do? What, what, what does a covenant do to people who get in a covenant? Um, a lot of things, but here are three big ones. First, covenants create special relationships out of normal relationships. They create special relationships out of normal ones. It takes regular people and it turns them into something special. You don't make covenants with your biological family because they're special by nature. For instance, my brother, I only have one, is my blood brother. He's special to me out of all the people in the world by nature. We did not enter an agreement to become brothers, but I did make a covenant with my wife. Previously, nothing differentiated me and Marissa from all the other men and women in the world. But after our covenant, she is now singularly unique to me and I to her. And the same goes for covenants we make in communities, in adoption. Covenants create special relationships out of normal ones. The second thing that a covenant does is it establishes and binds promises. It's one thing to say you'll do something. It's another thing to covenant yourself to do the thing you said you were gonna do. Everybody talks a big game, right? Everybody can say they're gonna do a lot of stuff, but often it's when we are faced with a covenant that we are forced to put our commitment where our mouth is. Um, so for instance, if you have a boyfriend or girlfriend that says they love you and they wanna be with you forever, but then you're like, sweet, let's commit to it, let's get married, and they're like, oh, I don't wanna do that, but I do love you and wanna be with you forever, something might be off, right? Covenants are relational ways of establishing and binding a promise. Third, covenants hold relationships together through hard times. We make covenants because we're sinners. <laughs> and because things always go sideways. Covenants are like braces. They're like safety ropes that are meant to keep things together when the going gets tough. One of my favorite marriage songs is a song called Dancing in the Minefields by a guy named Andrew Peterson, who I really love. And it's about this couple that gets married and they set off through the hardships of life. And the chorus is this. So we went dancing through the minefields and sailing through the storm. It was harder than we dreamed, but I believe that's what the promise is for. Promises are for the hard times. And covenants are gifts that people give to one another to build security and trust. They're ways of saying, when this gets tested and strained, I'm gonna stay. So covenants create special relationships, bind promises, and they hold things together when the going gets tough. And those are really beautiful because the opposite of that are relationships and communities that are unclear, uncommitted, and unstable. Now think about how wonderful it is that God never relates to us apart from a covenant. The God of the Bible never asks anyone to enter anything that is unclear, uncommitted, or unstable. Amen? 
Rather, God always comes to us with a covenant. And they're so important in the Bible that scholars call them the backbone of the Bible. They're like the whole structure of the salvation story. In the Old Testament, God makes a covenant with Noah. First, he's promised never to to destroy creation no matter how broken it gets. He then makes a covenant with Abraham, which we studied this past summer, that he's going to specifically bless Abraham's family and be with his family. Then he makes a covenant with all of Israel at Mount Sinai where he promises to become their God and they'll become his people, his treasured possession. And finally, God makes a covenant with David in the Old Testament promising to establish his kingdom forever, to fulfill all of his promises through one of his kingly descendants. This is how God is building on his relationship is always with these promises to his people. And in each of those situations, God's covenant commitments are accomplishing the three things we just talked about. Through them, God is creating special relationships with him out of normal ones. So we've, we've had lots of weddings in our church. We had a wedding yesterday in our church with Max and Madeline. It was wonderful. Um, and there's a moment, if you're ever watching a, a wedding, where they're not husband and wife. But then there's this pronunciation where it's like, now these people are husband and wife. It happens. And that happens in the Old Testament with the people of Israel. There's literally a part in Hosea where it says, once you were not a people, but now you're my people. There's this transfer that happens where Israel goes from being just like everybody else in the world to God's treasured possession. So it's creating special relationships, but also God is putting his commitment in covenants where his mouth is. He didn't just say to Israel, I'm going to be your God. He made a covenant with them, and he sealed it with blood in Exodus. This is one of the most beautiful parts about the character of God in the Old Testament, and it was one of the things that the people of Israel cherished most about Yahweh. If you read through the Old Testament, and we we make sure to pray a psalm uh, every week in church, and so you probably heard it if you've just come to church a couple times, but an average Israelite's prayer almost always includes something about how God is a promise keeper and he doesn't abandon what he said he would do, right? Almost every single one, O oh God who shows steadfast love to the thousandth generation and remembers his covenant. O oh God who performs with your hand what you've spoken with your mouth. O oh God who does not forget or abandon your people. God is a promise keeper. He's a promise maker. Wow. But now here's the bad news. God is a promise keeper, but we, as we sang so beautifully in that hymn, are prone to what? Wander. We in our sin are prone to leave the God we love. We're prone to break our covenant. We're prone to turn to other things. This was true of Israel in the Old Testament. Time and time again, in all those covenants I just said, we see the people breaking their side of the covenant and being fickle and faithless. And the bond that God made with his people is repeatedly strained and violated. But lest we be tempted to judge or pick up the first stone, this is true of us as well. We too have all of us, everyone in this room, at some point broken a promise. 
We too have all of us in this room had a promise that was made to us that was broken. And both of those wound us. So let's just get it out there on the table that we are all of us here today with imperfect track records. Amen? Bearing the pain and shame of broken commitments. So what do we do? What did God do? What did God do when he was faced with our unfaithfulness and our commitment issues? Did he throw out his promises? That's an actual question. Did God throw out his promises? No, he did not. Doesn't you love our Jeremiah reading today that Katie read? God literally says, hey, by the way, if you can break the night and the day, then I'll break my covenant. When that happens, then you'll know that I'm not going to keep my promises anymore. Isn't that awesome? Here's the gospel, and we all need to hear it, wounded as we are. God did not abandon his promises and commitment. He did not abandon the sinful, messed up team we are to serve his own brand. (laughs) Rather, he did the unthinkable. He doubled down on his commitment by sending his own son. When Jesus took on flesh and he became one of us, like I said before, that was him giving up his autonomy and his unrestricted divine freedom to commit to us. I love and Come Now Found, it says, here's my heart. The, the pe- person who wrote that song felt his prone to wanderness, right? I'm prone to do this, but the plea of Come Now Found is, here's my heart, seal it, bind it, constrain me to you, God. Don't let me leave you. Bind me in fetters is like tie me up so that when I want to, I can't go away from you. The incarnation is Jesus constraining himself to humanity. Before Jesus asks you to be bound to him, he bound himself to you. Amen? Wow. And what's amazing is that in Jesus' life and death, we see at the exact same time a picture of God's perfect faithfulness towards us and a picture of a human's perfect faithfulness towards God. In Jesus, God both fulfills God's promises to us and he fulfills our side of the covenant that we could never keep perfectly. He is the son of David who is perfectly faithful. He is the seed of Abraham who is perfectly faithful. He is Israel who is perfectly faithful to the covenant. And his faithfulness was unto death. On the cross, God puts his commitment and his covenant where his mouth is. And through the cross, he opened up a way for the new covenant, sealed by his blood, just as it was in Exodus. This is what Jesus instituted at his last supper, the night before he died. And this is what we remember every single week and will remember in a second when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. This is my blood of the what? New covenant. And in this new covenant, God offers forgiveness for all of us who break promises. Hallelujah. He atones for it. That's what the gospel is all about. And he provides for us the means to stay in relationship with him through the power and seal of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we pray when people are baptized. You are sealed with the mark of Christ and the the seal of the Holy Spirit. 
So what does the new covenant do in Jesus? Well, three things. It makes a special relationship for anyone who enters into that covenant with Jesus, right? We become daughters and sons. It binds his promises. Jesus' blood gives us confidence that Jesus is gonna do what he said he was gonna do. Nothing he said he was gonna do, he will not do because we see the proof of that on the cross. And three, it holds us, the new covenant does, during the hard times, both by the power of the Holy Spirit and just the testimony of the cross. This is why, I mean, one of the many reasons our worship is Eucharistic is because we always come to the table and at the table every week, we see someone hold up the cup and remind us of what Jesus said. Hey, this is my blood of the new covenant. We're experiencing Jesus say to us each week, I'm committed to you. I'm not going anywhere. I died for your sake. And so no matter how wandering we are, we come to church and we have this experience of God's covenantal faithfulness to us. That's what we're about to do. Aren't you excited to have the Lord's Supper? I am. Let's do it. Now, what in the world does all of this mean? Um, Here's the big thing. God's commitment in the gospel shapes our commitment. God's commitment in the gospel shapes our commitment. Often, our distrusting and wounded and paralyzed souls gets thawed and wooed in relationships when someone commits to us first. We are able to open ourselves up when others have opened themselves up to us and created a safe space. And when we feel and know that someone else is on our team and that come hell or high water, and I mean that literally for Jesus, they're not going anywhere, it gives us the power to open up. And brothers and sisters, this is what God does for us in the gospel. He commits to us first. He committed to you before you even knew who he was. He commits to you while you were unfaithful and messed up. And his commitment, his covenantal character begins to shape us and transform our hearts and it turns us into people who love like that. The heart transformed by God's covenantal character lives like that. It begins to transform the kind of friends we are, the way we treat people, the type of husbands and wives we are, the type of coworkers we are, the type of employees we are. And yes, it transforms the kind of church community we are. Body life is and has always been covenantal because the gospel is covenantal. Life in the church, Christ's body, is centered around the new covenant and the eternal, loving, unconditional commitment of our Lord, and therefore, our relationships with one another should have that feel to it, right? It should bear witness to it somehow. It should have that fragrance of it. And even though we are absolutely bonded with other brothers and sisters, our other brothers and sisters throughout the world and throughout Madison, there is a unique commitment that members in the same local body share together. It's special. I have loads of friends from other churches in Madison, and I'm, some of you may as well, and I, they are brothers and sisters. We are absolutely one and the same. But there's a, a uniqueness to the way that I relate to you and the way we relate to another one, or one another 
because we're in body life together. Body life is covenantal like the gospel, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So I want to finish by going back uh, to commitment phobia and just kind of where our, our world is at. We're all afraid of commitment. We all have good reason to be afraid of commitment and to not like it. The only thing that I think can rewire our brains and transform our hearts to love people unconditionally and to sacrificially commit ourselves to others is the gospel. And when that gospel heart transformation happens, we learn to live in a covenant-shaped community. And it can rescue us from isolation and fear and dismemberment. And what happens to the community that lives like this? The three things, right? Their special relationships are formed out of normal ones. We come into this thing and something happens in communion with one another. Second, promises are bound. They're established by deeds. We begin to live out the things that we say with each other. And those relationships become resilient enough to stand the test of time and to stand the test of our sin because all of us are sinners. That's the kind of community I really want to live in. Amen? That's the kind of community that I want to be in. That's the type of church community that's shaped like the covenantal character of God. That's the kind of community God is calling us to be. So let's prepare our hearts as we head to the Lord's table. This is truly a moment where word and table go right together because what we're about to do is we're about to have an experience of Jesus' commitment to us. We're gonna be reminded of the ways that he's loved us and died for us and kept his promises and his covenant. And a part of our table liturgy is reminding ourselves that he still promised us other things, like coming back. So whenever we celebrate the Lord's table, we proclaim his resurrection and his return. So let's let it draw us up to the covenant character of God and draw us to one another in body life. Amen? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.